we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Right. Well, uh, if you guys are ready, we yep. will we will start and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> see what rabbit holes we end up in. See how many bodies are left <laughs> at the end of it. Yeah, well, this last bloody thing about the whole death rate of capitalism, honestly, I think you've got a very long way there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 204 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 28th of May, 2019, and we're a couple of weeks into another three years of Scott Morrison. <laughs> Scott, but we're working our way slowly but surely <laughs> along our, how are you, Scott? I'm not too bad, thanks, Trevor. Yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. And, of course, Paul the 12th Man is here Hi as well. Hi, guys. Are you all drinking a bit more in the last couple of weeks? Or? Oh, I'm trying to cut back. I'm trying to cut back. Yeah. Very sensible. Yeah. It won't want, help. No. I want to feel the pain properly. Yes. Yeah. I Did, haven't been drinking or anything like that. I mean, this is my one beer a week, my two beers a week when I come around here. Very yeah. good. Seriously? Mm. Very, wow. Very good. Dear listener, this is an Australian podcast where we talk about news and politics and we have a particular interest in religion and the effect that it has on our Australian society. We talk about international events as well. And we just uh, chew the fat, talk about changes in our society, the movements that are happening, what are the implications, what should be happening. And uh, tonight we've got a bunch of topics, probably about more than a dozen of them. We'll see how many we get through. First up, well, Scott... Dear listener, again, if you're new to this podcast, we started this podcast four years ago nearly. Bloody hell, is it that long? Yeah. yeah. So, and at the time we were both members of the secular party and the idea of the podcast was to promote secularism and mm. the ideas of secularism because we saw it as important but nobody else was really talking about it at the time. I don't think. Exactly. Now we've got a national secular lobby. Yes. Mm. So the topic of religion and freedom of religion and all that has sort of exploded since those early days. Mm. Anyway, I've been saying for a long time that we need to lobby and we need to do what the religious groups do, and that is lobby politicians directly and lobby powerful groups, actually sit down and meet with them and have a chat and just face-to-face meetings, rather than writing articles that nobody reads, rather than just ringing up on talkback. I read them. Yeah, nobody in power reads or takes any notice of it. <laughs> You're right. So anyway, um, the National Secular Lobby, Lobby got up and running not so long ago. Brian Morris got that off, and... A news um, media release came out just recently where the National Secular Lobby ambassadors and executive met with the ABC managing director, David Anderson, he's the new one, and the editorial director, Craig McMurtry, to discuss the need for a secular voice. Dear listener, we have been complaining for years about how many religious programs there are on the ABC, and not only that, even... Non-religious programs like Q&A, for example, are just inundated with religious spokespeople who get to spruik the views of of the non-secular voice, and there's hardly ever a secular voice on these things. So 
uh, the National Secular Lobby formed a little posse and headed off to the ABC and made an approach and just and gave the case. And one of the best examples they gave, apparently, was a Q&A program which was on the topic of separation of church and state, and all six panellists were Christian and not one speaker was secular. Mm. And apparently that resonated quite well with David Anderson. So, Well, one would hope so. Mm. You know, because if ever there was any example of the bias that was in the ABC, that was it. You know, you had six panellists, all of them were Christians. It made no sense whatsoever. Mm. And, you know, that was, was that the one they wanted us all to write and complain about or was that something, was that another Q&A panel that, they, no, that was about George Pell, wasn't it? Mm, can't remember. I've, I've, I've written and complained about a lot of things. I'm starting to lose count. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. Anyway, yeah. uh, I think Jane Caro was instrumental at the meeting, so that's good. We've been a little bit critical of Jane, but good on you, Jane, on this occasion. And... Anyway, what they asked for was a specific pro-secular program and apparently that got knocked on the head. But they did say, give us a list of 20 people who are able to speak on behalf of secularism and these two guys will make sure that the producers of the various programs are aware of this list of 20 people and encourage them to, to sort of put the secular voice onto these programs more often than they have been. So... The National Secular Lobby made up a list of 20, and I don't know that I'm allowed to say who all the 20 are, but let me tell you that 19 of them are relatively famous, and one of them is not. <laughs> I wonder which one. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the one who's not is me, dear listener. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a Guernsey on the 20, so that's nice. Well done, Trevor, I see. Well done, Trevor, yeah. I mean, that was really good when you told us that. I thought that yes. was really very good. Yeah, because yeah. a little email went amongst our little group with, yeah, exactly. with them saying, I wonder who's on the list. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to fess up. <laughs> so that was nice. Yeah. Look, it's progress of a sort, isn't it? It is. Well, Look, it's see. progress, and I agree that it is, is it only progress of a sort. I mean, for God's sake, then they got knocked back for 30 minutes of airtime a month mm. to have a secular program on national mm. radio. That was ridiculous. Mm. However, it's baby steps. We've finally, we've finally got our foot in the door. Yeah. So, you know, of these 20 people, let's just watch and see how many of them get called up and that type mm. of thing. And then once we see that, then there will be probably some even greater pressure. So then we'll see our 30 minutes a month and then we'll get to 30 minutes a week and then we'll get to 30 minutes a day. Mm. It will happen. And Scott and I were talking about this on the way over and I made the point that um, they've had programs for decades, you know, and, and some of them used to be quite reasonably well-made programs like Compass. I remember when that was first on ABC television in the early 1990s it was a very decent program because it wasn't, it wasn't made from you know through a, a religious lens. It was about religion, but it was made more through a sort of sociological lens. Mm -hmm. And also, the Religion Report on ABC Radio National was a very good program. I used to listen to it almost religiously mm -hmm. because the the journalist who put it together. Uh, I, I got the strong feeling that he wasn't particularly religious himself and he did it as a, just a very good analytical journalist. Right. And it but, was but, but it would necessarily have involved uh, interviewing religious people? It did, but he interviewed them 
not from a religious perspective. He interviewed right. them from a sort of sociological perspective, yes. and it was very decent. Now he mm. got he got the you know he got shafted, mm. and they replaced it with the so-called religion and ethics report, yep. which is uh, which is moderated by. Uh, you know, yeah. outwardly... Anthony West, is it somebody West? Yeah, yeah something rather West. Yeah, yeah. people, people yeah. with a sort of religious studies background. A very sympathetic sort of view. Very sympathetic, mm. yes. And mm. it's, it's not, not the same program at all, mm. yeah. unfortunately. I'm, you know, uh, Mr West is, is not altogether a, a waste of time, I have to say. No, he's quite bright, but he's, 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 he's very sympathetic. It's a very, very easy run. Whereas very, the guy that mm. he replaced was um, just much more analytical and... And I think a lot of religious people got upset about him. Right. Because he used to ask very hard questions. Right, right. Yeah, very okay. probing questions. Mm. Apparently in this case, I think Brian's been trying for a while to get a meeting, but once Ita Buttrose became mm. the new chair, chair, chair uh, suddenly it was a lot easier and the meeting was arranged quite quickly. Interesting. So that was what he thought. So, Well, um, this is the whole point. Paul said that at the time that when Ida became chair that this was the time to strike yeah i don't yeah. know after after i heard the news that i made the list i, I was just singing in the shower one day it sounded a bit like this Dream about Ida sometimes? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> she might have been all right in a day, was she? Yeah, well, according to Cole Chisel, she, yeah, she wasn't. Was, yeah. yeah. Mm. Hey, um, look, hey, she's doing pretty good even now. Let's, let's not, well, we'll not have a, a bad word <laughs> said against Ida. Ida. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, Labor uh, has been urged to include people of faith. So, Chris <laughs> Bowen, well, still, is he still. Shadow Treasurer until uh, the new until the new team has been announced, but yeah. that hasn't been announced yet. Mm. I would imagine he will remain in the Shadow Treasury position. I couldn't tell you, but I would imagine the Labor Party is probably going to go with a pretty much unchanged team. I would have thought. Mm. So he uh, highlighted the perceptions of Labor among religious people while bowing out of the race for the party's leadership. Uh, he said that. I've noticed as I've been around during the election campaign and even in the days since how often it has been raised with me that people of faith no longer feel that progressive politics cares about them. Uh, he told reporters, these are people with a social conscience who want to be included in the progressive movement. We need to tackle this urgently. I think this is an issue from the federal election that we haven't yet focused on. So basically... Paraphrased would be, uh, we need to suck up to the religious uh, vote. Sounds is that, like is that a fair yeah. summary? Pretty fair. Mm. Good advice? No. no considering the strife <laughs> that the Catholic Church caused them back in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. Do they want to go back to that? Well, he's saying in order to get the votes. Not only that, but there was a certain WA Labor senator who used to, what was he, with the shops, Shoppies Union or something? He was, yeah, and he was that idiot who was out there saying that you've got to, you can't have abortion, you can't have gay marriage, all that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and this is the whole thing that really made me sick. You've got shopkeepers, 
How many of them have ever spoken to you when you're at the li- the at the checkout in super in supermarket about you know oh, abortion and gay not, marriage? Not a lot, exactly. <laughs> but these are these people they were taking their money and they were f- campaigning for it. It made no sense whatsoever. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'll get off my high horse. It's a backward yeah. step, I think. Yeah. So it really is. I, I, I did watch a little bit of. Q and A last night. Just I, I, was, I wasn't going to, but the very first question hooked me in because That's a right. lady said, "You know, I I feel amongst my community that there was enormous worry and concern about freedom of religion and the right to parent, and you know, more or less, I'm so relieved that there's a conservative government. Yes. And gosh, keep up the good fight. You must protect our religious privilege, sort of thing. And Shadow Attorney General Mark Dreyfus was saying things like, well, we need to have a conversation and we will be respectful and we will take into account everybody's views, et cetera, et cetera. But Marcia Langton, I thought, was the best one. She on this was a bit more direct and said, look, more or less, demanding your rights to be bigots and to discriminate against gay people is not being Christian, so I'm, I'm not too sympathetic to you. It was kind of... She was a lot harsher on it than saying. So I was, I was with Marcia Langton on that one. Yes, but Marcia Langton also <laughs> decided that she had, you know, she she could choose between what was a bigot and what wasn't. You know. Yes. And I yes. don't personally trust her judgment very mm. much. She comes out with some really good stuff, and then comes out with some she, ordinary stuff. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, she used to be quite quite articulate, but she looks half asleep these days when she's on these panels. I think she just doesn't take any nonsense. Like when somebody's talking think? crap, I think she just sits there and waits for her turn and gives her a bit and, yeah, I, I, I just thought she looked very relaxed. And If I say uh, any more, it might yeah. be defamatory, yeah, so I'll okay. shut up. Stop. Good <laughs> idea. Mm. Um, the Australian Christian Lobby hailed the Coalition's election victory as a win for... Religious freedom. Mm. But I couldn't understand that, you know... Anyway, you're going to go on with this, go on. Well, so. how many votes did the Australian? Uh, how, many, how many votes did former leader of the Australian Christian Lobby and candidate for the Australian, Australian Conservatives, Conservatives uh, Lyle Shelton? How many votes did he get, Scott? Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> when you and I were running in the Senate, how many votes did you get? Well, I you up, personally, I personally got eighty-seven votes. Yay. No, you got one hundred and five. Oh, yeah, in total, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, with postals yeah. and provisionals and pre- you got 105. I got 105 votes, yeah. yeah. Scott, you, you are 8.7 times more popular than Lyle <laughs> Shelton and you were second on the secular party <laughs> ticket. How many did Fraser Anning get? Uh, 12, wasn't it? When he, when he, when he got yeah. elected into the Senate, he ended up with 12 votes for himself personally. Yeah. So it's about the same as Lyle. Yeah, yeah. so exactly. And um, just in terms of party terms, so the uh, Australian Conservatives picked up uh, the writings are very small, nearly six hundred mm. in total above the line. Um, Is that all? Yeah, that's all. Meanwhile, Frank and his um, help and marriage <laughs> marijuana protection, they got uh, prohibition. prohibition. <laughs> yes, help and marijuana prohibition. Thank you. And nearly twenty eight thousand by the looks of it. So well done, Frank. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he did well. Yeah. Mm. Have you seen I him? voted for Frank. Have you seen him lately or not? I haven't no, seen him. I saw him last Sunday at the Humanist Society meeting. Oh, good. Right. 
Dear listener, if, if you think that we're just rabbiting on about this theocracy that we're sort of falling into here, if you think it's all part of our imagination, then here's the Deputy Prime Minister. I'll play a little grab for you. So that's your policy at the moment, pray for rain? One of many policies. No, I will always pray for rain. I pray for lots of things. I think people should pray more and I think, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to pray. Fact is, we've got to do more than just pray. We've got to put in the right policies. We've got to be practical and pragmatic about it, and that's what we're doing. The Lord helps those who help themselves. <laughs> we've got to be practical and pragmatic and pray as well. Oh, God. This is our debt. This is from the head of the Nationals, yeah. McCormack. Indeed. You know, when I was at school and all that sort of stuff, we used to have prayers for rain. Was this out of an Anglican prayer book? Oh, God, I think I can remember it. Did you have a prayer for oh, rain? Yeah, we did pray for rain. Really? Every, yeah, oh, every goodness. every couple of weeks. There was always something he said, you know, he'd always say, oh, please, in your mercy, send rain to save both crops and beasts, blah, 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 blah. Seriously? Yeah. Hmm. And that was something. But, you know, it was almost like it was an afterthought. It wasn't the primary reason you were talking about the drought. Mm. You were talking about the drought because it was a disaster and then the prayer was something you offered for it. It wasn't something that you did as a primary did response. Did you sacrifice sort of... Um, Virgins for it? No. No, I was thinking more <laughs> lambs, you know, mm, piglets, uh, calves, potty calves, something I mean, along those lines. It could be worse. I mean, it could be our prime minister praying for rain. Oh, he does that. Let's pray for one more thing. Lord, we pray for our farmers. Yes. Lord, we pray for our rural communities, our indigenous communities. Lord, we pray that you'll bring light, that you'll bring hope, that you'll bring encouragement, and Lord, that you will bring rain. Hallelujah. There we go. Don't worry about the drought. It's all going to be fixed with a bit of prayer from our Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, the leaders of our country, showing us how it's done. He didn't pray for the homeless. <laughs> no, he didn't pray for the homeless mm. because, you know, they didn't, they didn't help themselves. They, they, probably, they probably don't vote. They didn't give it's, it a go. It's part of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, see, because yeah. they didn't give it a go, then they're not going to get a go. Exactly. Oh, yeah. If you're having a go, you'll get a go. <laughs> I just happen to have that sitting there. Nice timing, Trevor. Also <laughs> uh, yeah. part of the prosperity gospel, of course. Because, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're doing well, it's a sign from I read God that you're worthy. Yes, I read it on the conversation. Yeah. I think where that was where they were saying that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anne sent us a message. She walked into a bank, and there was a picture of a lady wearing a hijab, and it was advertising. Um, I think it was a, a, a travel card. Travel card, yeah. And it was plastered all over the um, all over the National Australia Bank, the picture, and she said she felt uncomfortable with it, but she wonders if she's got a problem. And you don't, don't have a problem. <laughs> well, I wouldn't think twice about the picture. I mean, if it happened all the time, every day, sure, but occasionally there's just going to be other people showing in these. They're not always going to be white Anglo-Saxons shown in, in these sorts of things. So yeah, if, if every advertising bit of material you saw was a lady in a hijab, then I'd start worrying. But every so often, you know, relax. It's no big deal. 
That's my view. But you yeah, look but, like you're going to disagree with me. But the, you know, there's only two percent of the population are Islamic. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it was. But but not a hundred percent of the population is white Anglo-Saxon. No, that's very true. So there's going to be times where there's going to be other people. So what, relaxing. What do, you, what do you think about the writing on the the woman's shirt? The woman wearing the hijab shirt. It says, "Focused on the journey, not my money." Yeah. Um, what sort of message does that convey to you? What it means is that she's, she's thinking about her travel vacation yeah. and not having to worry about accessing her money because she's got this great travel card that's that's looking after or, everything for her. Or her money is hidden inside the hijab. <laughs> no. <I don't, laughs> so maybe they so. should be giving away complimentary hijabs with every money card. Yeah. Uh, and in summary... It's, uh, it's a it's, substitute it's, for a money belt, you know. Yeah. When you travel, you have a money belt hidden under your shirt. This woman's yeah. got the money belt strapped on her head. Mm. And hidden by the hijab. It's mm. brilliant. You're right. <laughs> okay, there you go. Paul Monk had a theory and he said, here's the underlying question. Are we as a society actually better off with a universal franchise than one restructured by criteria of competence? Well, what he goes on to say is everybody can vote. Should we change the system so that people must be qualified to vote by proving some sort of competency or knowledge of what's going on before they are entitled to vote. Well, I'm the first to admit, this is the first time I've admitted this publicly, ladies and gentlemen, is that I used to think that that was probably not a bad idea. However, I understand where the guy's coming from. However, I just don't think that's right. You've got to have universal suffrage as much as possible. I, I agree. And so. then after that, you've got to have politicians who can deliver the message in a way that it is marketable to every member of the population. But that should be in conjunction with a, a comprehensive, high-quality secular education for all kids, you know, free of religious and all kinds of other bullshit indoctrination. Otherwise, you know, it's like sheep to the slaughter, isn't it? Uh, I, People I, get yeah. tribal. I think the suggestion is flawed for two reasons. One is the 1% are already screwing us. Absolutely. And the only yeah. chance we have to stop them is, is to give the 99% to vote. of extra vote. So if you have it structured such that only a certain type of person can vote, the 1% will work out a way to make sure yeah. that it's people who they want who are in that category. Yeah and not the people they don't want, like the precisely the sort of people who might eventually just be jack of it all mm. and vote against them, might introduce a wealth tax, are going to be the people excluded from this sort of scheme. So, so that's number one. And the second thing is the problem isn't so much with the voters, it's the calibre of candidates and parties that we've got to choose from. The problem is our choice, and it is the people who are getting into power who are the ones who are... That's where the real issue is. Like, ultimately, the choice between Labor and Liberal was really one right-wing party and one extreme right-wing party. Like, they're both... <laughs> seriously, they're both right-wing parties, let's face it. So... And just the calibre of candidates as well. So that's where the problem is. And you could have, you know, a country of Einsteins voting... But if the candidates are Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten, well, there's your problem. Mm. So, I think it comes back to, and I've been banging on about this for a long time, is that I think you've got to get rid of the, you've got to reform the way politics is financed in Australia. Yes. 
honestly believe you've got to limit the donations to individual natural human beings and it's got to be only 1500 bucks a head. And then after that, the parties are going to have to do something radical. They're going to have to go out and get members. Mm. And if they've got large numbers of members who are there in their face, then they're going to go back and report to Canberra. They're going to say, look, the guys up there, they're not happy with this. Instead, you've got right now a very narrow group of people who in the Tory side get fed everything from Sky News and then they go and earbash their members about everything they read on they've heard on Sky News and they go back reporting to Canberra and they'd say we've got to we've got to crack down on this. You know? And on the Labor side you've got them who are, you know, trained in the unions, they get moved through the unions, they then go and work for a minister, then they go and become a, a candidate. You know, mm. I honestly believe you'd be better off if you opened it up. And I would even argue that we should reduce the amount of federal government funding for them so they're forced to go out and find members. Mm. I tend to like the idea that all parties are allocated funding, you know, for, for electioneering. Yeah, but what do you, how do you do that? What, based, the on the number of, based on the number of votes they got at the previous election. Yeah, that's interesting. The formula I'm, I haven't thought too yeah. much yeah. about. But yeah. I, I like the idea of shutting out corporate funding completely yeah. Yeah. From, from all sources. And mm. union funding and yeah, lobby all, group funding, all of, the all whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And just say, okay, every candidate is allocated so much to promote their, their election. They're allocated a certain amount of airtime to explain their policies and, uh, you know, really level the play, playing field a lot. Mm. Uh, we certainly don't want to go down the road that the United States has taken mm. where money buys mm. elections. Look, this is a completely fanciful notion. This is, I'm not for a minute suggesting this idea could possibly ever happen. Like but. This, is, this is just fairy tale, science fiction novel stuff, okay? But the calibre of laws would greatly improve if we said to all of our elected uh, representatives... Write your name on this slip of paper and put it in this in this bin here. And uh, we're going to roll the bin over and then this barrel girl's going to pluck the numbers out. And 10% of you are going to end up in the wealthy elite class. Um, 40% of you are going to end up in the middle class. And the other 50% of you are going to end up in the poor working class. Um, and you don't know which one you're going to be in until the end of the uh, term. Off you go and start passing laws. <laughs> with these characters thinking, holy shit, in three years' time I might be in the poor working class. I think I might bump up the pension rates. I think I might start doing these other... Like, um, you would, the laws would change dramatically. Would, that's um, actually quite a rational idea. <laughs> Thanks, God, man. Yeah. So, um, anyway, there's a science fiction novel in there for somebody who wants to write that. Hmm. Um, it's not a bad but, idea, but it highlight, it highlights just the fact that yeah. we're all we're all born into our 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 life's fortunes, aren't yeah. we? Yes. I mean, just yeah. the fact that we're born in Australia gives us mm-hmm. a, a step up. Yeah, and you know, and people will make decisions based on what they've got. Like these politicians passing laws on negative gearing of investment properties, who own six investment properties, are clearly going to be thinking of their own interest. So, yeah. I've got a confession to make on self-interest and conflict, 12th man. I can hardly wait. Mm. Remember when we were talking about the National Secular Lobby did their little table of who to vote for and who had passed secularism test and Liberals failed, um, Labor 
had some okay marks on it and the Greens was a straight A. And you yeah. said, where's the secular party? Exactly. Where's the minor party? Exactly. And, and I was defending the national secular lobby at that point saying, well, you've got to understand, they've got to make this, you know, this, this a certain size, blah, blah, blah. Well, at that time, I knew that the national secular lobby had put me on their list of 20. <laughs> So <laughs> I, at that point, I'm thinking, I, I'm, well, I'm two things. I'm thinking, good on them for actually getting there and making this lobbying effort and and also good on them for putting my name on the list. So I was really reluctant to criticise mm. at that point. And I couldn't tell you that this conflict, but if I had my time again, I would say, dear listener, as I'm making this comment, I'm under a conflict of interest that I can't reveal the details of. Take my comments with a grain of salt. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't it's think just you're under any conflict. I mean, you know. no, but I was I was predisposed of a more favourable view of the national secular lobby at that point in time. There you go. Yeah, so it's, yeah but I've always had a favourable view of yes. them, and so I mean, this is their mm. first mm. successful lobbying attempt, yeah. and they have they you're have very, they have done a very good job. You're very good, Scott. You donate twenty dollars a month, twenty bucks a month. Yes. Yeah. What I'm looking for is a thousand people to follow me so that we can end up with $20,000 a month going into them and then they're going to have a decent amount of money that they can go and actually mm-hmm. they can actually have staff and then they can go and sit down there in Canberra and then when they see the ACL go in, then they can follow them in straight after. They say, right, what did that pack of dickheads offer you? Right. you know, just, <laughs> Harsh language. Well, I know, but that's what they are. Mm. You know? Yeah, good point. Yeah. One day, hopefully. Look, I've always been supportive of the National Mm. Secular Lobby as well. And Mm -hmm. in my very modest way, I've tried to uh, help Mm. promote their their causes and Mm. their, 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 you know, the stuff they publish on their website. But Mm. I was just really, really disappointed that they completely ignored the secular party. Yeah. um, Which has very, very similar interests to the National Secular Lobby in terms of our... But mind you, Political orientation. so does the Pirate Party and so does Reason and so do the Greens. And they ignored and, all of them. So, yeah. So, I'm sorry, but I'm still Well, you can take that up with the President who we'll hopefully be interviewing next week. I'd certainly like to. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now, 12th man, mm-hmm. you're still single. Mm. Ladies out there, the 12th man. Sorry? <laughs> you're trying to find me a date? <laughs> well, there's a, have you heard about the dating app called Toffee? I only Only read it on the running sheet for tonight's (laughs) podcast. Dear listener, there's a dating app for private school graduates called, and the app is called Toffee. It launched in Britain last year and now it's coming to Sydney. And it's the world's first dating app for people who were privately educated. So Toffee founder and English private school alumna, alumnus, alumna, uh, um, well, a single person. I go along with alumni. Wouldn't alumni be a group of people? Yes. So what would plural. be a sing? What's uh, the singular? Uh, of, what's the singular? Al- alumnus. 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 Lydia Davis said the app had a list of schools and users can add theirs uh, if it's not on the list. So it's not just privately educated. It's uh, privately educated at a certain income level. No, it just a, had to be a private school. Uh, so they double-check the school, making sure it is independent slash private. That's, that's the key criteria. I think this is a great idea. You because would. Because <laughs> if I was in the dating game, yes. I, would, I would get on that app and any prospective uh, partner I would look up and if I saw their name on the app, 
that'd be it. I'd be sad. <laughs> I'm not going to touch you with a barge pole. <laughs> if you're the sort of wanker who puts your name on that app, then you are completely inappropriate from what I'm looking for. I'd be saying, I think it's a great app for sorting out. Okay. Uh, sorting the cheap sh- and the yeah. sharp chart. What about someone in my position who's <laughs> desperate for a date? I mean, what, should, I, should I knock them all back as well? There's a problem with this app. There's one problem with it. It's name. It's called Toffee. It should be called Tosses. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Goodness me! What sort of, what sort of tosser gets on an app? And says, oh, I'm just only interested in going out with somebody from a private school. Oh, give me a break! You pack of wankers. That's what they are. Give me a break! Like it's you know, honestly, use it as a filtering mechanism. Twelfth man, if you're if you if you have a date with a young lady and goes well, hop on that app and just check she's not on there. Oh, that, that's my advice. Be my first question. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently. Here's some good news for you. Yeah. There's an article from The Australian which uh, said that a good man is hard to find and increasingly becoming even more scarce, according to this article. Yeah. Where are all the good marriageable men? This is a question so ubiquitous to my female peers and me that to justify it seems almost trite. Yet I was asked to do that, to do just that, after publishing a piece in the Catholic Weekly this month stating a wildly held but seldom heard, heard view of the lack of desirable, moral men in this country, especially in the church. I can talk to any young woman in my social circle and they will all say the same thing. There just aren't any men. What we mean by this is there is a frightening scarcity of men aged 25 to 35 who are church-going, single and worldly wise. Well, that rules you out, Paul. Mm. <laughs> I'm single. <laughs> yeah, but you're not church-going. Church <laughs> worldly wise is debatable. You're not 25 to 35 either. But Most men I meet have two out of three of these qualities with the last often lacking. If they're single churchgoers, they're often in want of basic social awareness, a big turn-off for most women. If they're more socially adjusted, they're generally not single or not religious. Even if they're not religious, most young Australian men hold views and values that are utterly opposed to our own. As a Christian, trying to find a normal Aussie bloke who is willing to enter a chaste relationship can feel like looking for a gold dust. Well, there's the clue. (laughs) (laughs) The C word. (laughs) Yes. Which Aussie bloke wants to enter a chaste relationship? Trying to find a normal Aussie bloke who's willing to enter a chaste relationship can feel like looking for gold dust. I actually know of some young females who are part of like a Christadelphian sect and oh, lovely girls. That's a very conservative sect. Lovely girls. Yeah. And they, one girl, I think in, in my mind, you know, single because she will only choose a guy from that religion yeah. and there's just not many of them. No. And there's pickings of very I don't like slim. chances. No. So that's one of the evils of religion in that it's – brainwashed these people into having yeah. ultimately uh, missing out on a lot of opportunities. A lot of unchaste mm. activities. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but just normal relationships. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, unchaste yeah. activities yeah. are, well, in my book, pretty normal relationships Indeed. or parts of a normal relationship. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yes, it's, mm. it's sad, isn't it? Mm. So, anyway, 12th Man fanboys out there, if, if you've got a mother who's single... <laughs> Or a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know. 
Right. I've got I've got a new, another article here. I've I've titled it. I told you Jordan Peterson is nuts. And um, did I send you guys this one? Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> so, in this article, it's from the um, Pathos, I think. Uh, it starts off Jordan Patriarchy Peterson, the smart person for dumb people, <laughs> <laughs> gives his alt right fanboys permission to dream of enforced monogamy, and basically. He is saying that uh, there's a problem in our culture that guys are not getting enough sex and enough female partners and he's saying that the cure for that is enforced monogamy so that women have to hook up with just one guy so that there's not a danger of one guy having several partners or I don't know what he's saying. How do you enforce such a thing? Well, how do you come up with such a stupid idea in the first place? That was the whole point. I didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's trying to say there should be some sort of enforced monogamy so that we don't have these bands of incels running around not getting enough sex and causing trouble and, uh, and feeling alienated from society. Goodness me. If, please, if you're still a Jordan Peterson fan out there, just give up on that guy. If he's, that isn't enough, eh? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. Anyway, there's a link to all that. Adani and employment, I thought we would talk about. So, that's mm. lots of links and a little map that you can look at. And I thought we'd talk about Adani and coal mining. Because it's not going away, Scott, as a no, topic. No, it's not. And this is yeah. the whole point. I don't understand. I mean, one would hope that, you know, because the government is talking about spending $1.5 million on railway lines out to the point, whatever it is. Abbott Point. Abbott Point. Mm. If they're going to spend $1.5 billion on that, and I thought the high end of the job estimates were 1500 what they're saying there, ladies and gentlemen, is that each of those jobs is worth $1 million. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe that those guys are going to earn a million dollars a year. You know? So who, who is spending the million dollars? The government? Us, the taxpayer. The taxpayer spends a million dollars to generate one worker's job. Exactly. One, one million per worker. One million per worker. Is, is, if, that, is if, that the figure you came across? That's what I came across because right. they, they were talking about 1,500 jobs being created with this mine. Then I've read other articles that are suggesting that you're not going to have anywhere near that number of jobs because it's going to be one of the more automated mm. mines in the world. Yeah. When and they then, first announced it, it was they were saying something like 1,500 in, jobs, yeah, wasn't it? Well, 1,500 was the number I was working on just yeah. then. Yeah. Now, if they're, if they're going to spend $1.5 billion on railway lines, that's a million dollars a head for each of those jobs. Now, <clears throat> if you can then justify that sort of expenditure, that would mean that they are going to be must be planning on making a hell of a lot of money out of royalties. But because royalties are based on the price that you get for the thermal coal out of the ground and considering the uh, global market for thermal coal has been in decline... I just don't see how the hell this mine makes any sense, you know? And then you've got that very good Bloomberg article, article that Trevor's linked to. Mm. It, it's It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. You know, it, it's a very expensive mine. And, you know, Clive Palmer's apparently got mines up there that he's just waiting for the 
railway lines. He wants to piggyback on the railway lines. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Arguably, you could come up with a figure. I've just done a quick calculation of five point three million per um, per employee. Because really, <laughs> in this article I've got here that. Um, between 2008 and 2013, in Queensland alone, the government outlaid more than $8 billion on projects to benefit the coal industry. $8 billion? $8 yes. Billion. Yeah. So that would cover existing... Um, well, in November 2018, the coal industry employed slightly fewer than 50,000 people. So let's do that. Eight... Uh, I boy. So that works out to $160,000 per coal employee. So there's currently about 50,000 coal employees and the Queensland government has spent $8 billion on the coal industry. So 160000 per employee. Now, how, how, in, much, how, in, much, how much does the Queensland in, government keep in royalties, though? Bugger all. Really? Yeah. yeah. I thought No, in fact, let me give you the figures on that. Uh, let me tell you. So the coal, this is from an article I've got a link to here, although coal accounts for almost 15% of Australia's total exports, coal mining makes a surprisingly small contribution to government revenue. Even with coal prices at historically high levels in 2017-2018, coal royalties only accounted for around... 6.4% of Queensland government revenue. And that figure is projected to fall to 4.6% by 2021 as coal prices decline. To put that in context, in 2017, income from motor vehicle registrations accounted for 3% of government revenue. <laughs> yeah. So it will be barely more than income from motor vehicle registrations. Yeah. Yeah, so spending all that money on creating jobs—it's like it, putting mice in a treadmill. It's insane, and we're not going to get any company tax out of a darnie, no. <laughs> because a if they make any profit, they're going they to get shifted it overseas. Yeah. But b, it's just not going to add up. So there's a link here to a Bloomberg article which goes through all the figures, and its conclusion is that for the type of coal that's in the Galilee Basin and the cost of shipping it to the coast, which is significant, it would cost about $88 per tonne to produce the coal, which they could sell for $66 per mm. tonne. So it's a loss. The, the figures don't add up on this coal mine. And the question is, well, why would a Dani be wanting to build a coal mine yeah, what that's not going to make... What are they trying to do? Yeah. Yeah. So they're not actually going to sell the coal because the whole point is they're going to put it in their own power stations in India. Mm. So they're not looking to sell it. They're looking just to have vertical integration. Mm. And to, but the point is they could still buy coal for $66... Without doing Without anything. doing anything. So why do it? And it's, I think... I've tried to find the answer, but there is some political power play happening, which I can't get my um, a grip of at this stage. But basically, the, the banks weren't willing to lend money to Adani. No. And they were scrambling around trying to get the government to lend money, and the government was saying, well, we're not going to lend it to you. So they ended up having to like self-fund it out of some reserves from other money they had. So anybody who's looked at this project says financially it doesn't stack up. Mm. When you look at the employment, 
at you know the figure of ten thousand employees gets bandied about all the time, but uh, coal mines don't have many employees, and they're talking about a um, a really highly mechanised, um, almost a robotic sort of. Even, um, even the trains and the trucks. Exactly, these days, unmanned so, trains, yeah. unmanned trucks. Uh, we're talking large equipment. And the other thing is, this mine is so big, it's going to put the other mines in Australia out of business. So the mines in the Hunter that are currently employing people are going to put people off. Really? Yes. How about the quality of the coal? Because apparently the quality of the coal from the Hunter Valley is quite good, isn't it? I'm not sure on the quality issue, but basically all of the economic calculations say when you produce this much coal from another source, it's going to put the other coal mines out of business and they'll be putting employees off. So when you say, okay, there might be 2,500 full-time employees at the Adani mine, you have to take off the 1,000 who got sacked from the Hunter Valley and other mines. So your net gain for the country might be 1,500. And many of those jobs aren't going to be rural. They're actually going to be in the cities with guys sitting looking at a screen operating a, a, a truck from by remote control, uh, you know, all sorts of other jobs that will be done in the, in the cities. So... This is the story that wasn't told by the Labor Party. Like, they, they should have told these stories and said to central Queensland, you know, we're not going to get any jobs. We make much more money from the reef and from tourism and from other things that are going to be put in danger by this thing. The jobs are not going yeah. to come from this that you think are coming from it. Mm. The dangers are there. We're not going to make money from it. Um, and you can understand a government wanting people to have jobs, but yes. it's it's a it's what in the in the teaching profession they call busy work. You know, giving mm. people jobs that is not really achieving very much. Yeah. So, former Reserve Bank economist and the Adani consultant himself, Jerome Farher, was pressed on the question of jobs, and he admitted that the figure of ten thousand was extreme and unrealistic. Instead, he argued at the peak of construction the project would employ approximately 2,400. But because many of these jobs would come at the expense of those elsewhere, the number of jobs created would be considerably lower. And he said over the life of the project, an average of 1,464 full-time equivalent direct or indirect jobs would be created. And this is from the Adani's consultant. So... And they probably inflated the figures. Yeah. The Australia Institute says that it's going to lead to significant job losses at existing coal mines, eliminating up to 9,000 jobs in the Hunter Valley, 2,000 in the Bowen Basin and 1,400 in the Surat Basin. So this is a big mine. Like, let me just find the um, figures here. It's absolutely huge. Mm. So... The Hancock Alpha Mine was the first to be approved, but it was Adani's Carmichael Mine that pushed ahead the fastest. Incorporating six open-cut pits and five underground mines, Carmichael would not just be bigger than any other mine in Australia, it would be bigger than almost any mine in the world, with its pits and mines spread over a site almost 50 kilometres long and 10 kilometres wide, Carmichael would eventually disturb almost 280 square kilometres. Even the smallest of the six pits was to be six kilometres long and 1.7 kilometres wide. 
Adani estimated that the four major seams it intended to mine contained 8.3 billion tonnes of coal. So much that even at an annual output of 60 million tonnes, it would take 150 years to exhaust the mine. If you're going to throw that much coal onto the market, clearly the other coal producers are going to suffer. They can't all produce at the same amount with that amount coming on. So, yeah. And, you know, there's been this report about the presumptive Deputy Labor leader, what's his name? Marles, is it? Marley, M-A-R-L-E-S. Richard Marles. Richard Marles, yeah. He was um, interviewed on Sky News a couple of months ago. You've been watching Sky News again, Scott? Oh, I have been watching Sky have News. You? Well, what's it like? It's not too bad. I mean, you, you just got to understand, you got you got to take it with a grain of salt, especially when Credlin's on there, you know. <laughs> and Rowan Dean? I've never seen Rowan Dean. Oh, okay. No. Um, but when Credlin's on there, Brian takes the um, the remotes off me so I can't throw them at the television. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, <clears throat> but he was interviewed on them couple of months ago and he said at the time he said the price of thermal coal around the world has gone backwards and that's a good thing because it shows that the world is moving towards renewables now if you've got this massive mega mine that's going to be opened up and you've already you've already acknowledged that the price of thermal coal is going to be less than what you can actually produce the stuff for and ship it to the ocean it makes no sense whatsoever and if this is going to continue to shrink, if the price is going to continue to fall, we'd be better off leaving the stuff in the ground up there. Mm. And we'd be better off saying – we would have been better off having that conversation with central Queensland, actually explaining to them that the jobs aren't going to come. The jobs are going to be um, remote-controlled drivers in the city. Mm. And what about the environmental impact? I mean – not just the uh, the surface environment, but the the uh, subterranean water exactly is going to be potentially be well, not only the amount of water the amount of water that this coal mine is going to be it's going to be sucking, sucking it's, it dry. it's going to be sucking it dry yeah potentially polluting it's, what is left. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if they get the bloody railway lines built. And then after that, saying, oh, we don't need it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Mines do, mining industry does it all the time where it says, we demand this infrastructure, set it up for us, and then, you know, the commodity price of whatever it is that's being mined drops by 15% and they said, okay, we're out of here now. Like, exactly. And, and it happens all the time, mining mm. groups. So, yeah. Hey, um, well, in, sorry, on. just one other thing. I've got a friend that works in the public service. And he said that the Queensland state government's in turmoil right now because of the election result. Mm. And they are shitting themselves. I bet they are. Well, but this is why, you know, what's her name? Palaszczuk has gone through and said that, you know, we've, Adani's got to be approved in two weeks. She looks panicked. She is she? panicked, yeah. Mm. And this is the whole point. I honestly believe... If the feds couldn't get it across to the people of central Queensland, it's up to the state government to sit down with them and explain to them why Abdani's a bad idea. No current politicians are capable of telling and selling a story. They're not capable of moving the population in a direction. They can only, they're just weather vanes. They just test the mood and try and make policy according to that. But, and they'll shift and change according to that. They, they're incapable, this current mob, of doing a Paul Keating or something and, mm. and, and to his credit, John Howard to some extent, of actually persuading the country 
off something. So it won't happen. Well, mm. that's very true, but it's a real pity because mm. I honestly believe that the state government could pick, could pick a decent fight over this. Mm. And, you know, they what they've got to do is they've got to tell the Greens to stay the F out of it, tell them to stay out of it and just leave it up to the government and let the government put a decent case to the people of central Queensland mm. to explain to them why we're not going to risk the reef, why we've got to keep this in the ground. Look, all I've got to do is say, look at these figures. We just spent, the Queensland State Government spent $8 billion on coal projects. There's only $50,000, 50,000 of you working in them. We may as well have just handed you the money. Exactly. And you'd have each got $160,000. Like, that, there's the story. Just mm. say that and people go, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, now I get it. They could but all take a long Has anybody vacation. ever told that story? Dear listener, have you heard that story from anywhere other than this podcast? Nobody. No. That's why, dear listener, you should become a patron. <laughs> and the Iron Fist, <laughs> it should be Prime Minister Fist, I and think. You should become a patron like Sean Janelle, Craig John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Rod Pallet, Maddockman, Dominic Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aidan, Wheat Watcher, Nico, Andy, Murray, Melinda, and new patron Adam, and non well, uh, patrons who do it outside of Patreon, uh, Dean, Ken, who looks like Sammy J, was <laughs> the beneficiary, David, Mark, and Mr. Anderson. Honestly, dear listener, the last two episodes were crackers. If you listened to those and did not think it was worth a dollar, then we can't do any better. Like, seriously, <laughs> go away and find another podcast. Oh, the, the, the deal is... Now you're sounding like uh, Chris Bowen. I'm sounding like Chris Bowen. That's yeah. right, I am. If I'm going to lose the election. If you don't like our policies, vote for someone else. <laughs> That's right. If you, if, you, if you didn't see value in those two, if they weren't worth a dollar... Then go. Like, like, we can't do any better for you. And um, so, yeah, that's my message to you. You get 20 to 25 free episodes. That's how it works, dear listener, if you're new to this. <laughs> and you can taste it, see if you like it. And after that, if you're, if you're really hooked, then we expect you to, to visit the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and go to the Patreon link and sign up. Beer sponsors, do you want me to listen, list them or you've got oh, them there? I've got them here. Okay. The beer sponsors was Wayne A, Landon Hardbottom, Bronwyn Dave, Adam, Landon Hardbottom again, Caitlin, Zach and Captain Doomsday. And tonight we are drinking from Zach, James Squire, Hop Thief. Thank you very much, Zach. Thank you, Zach. Mm. We are going to launch into a, a heated discussion about capitalism, Ooh, communism. Here we go. <laughs> this could be another... Well, I hope it turns out to be another Venezuela. Ooh. We'll see. I don't think so. <laughs> this all started because we were talking about China and America, and I said, well, you were saying 12th man. I was saying China is dangerous. Is a looming threat mm. to Australia's uh, political freedom, autonomy, not in the near future, but certainly in the uh, medium to distant future. Yep. So you're all I in with Uncle Sam. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that they should not be admired because they are a totalitarian state. I don't necessarily believe that China wants to. Well, China probably does want to control the politics. They don't of have to physically invade a country to control it. Yeah, and that is the whole point. 
that I do think you need to be wary of them. You do need to worry about their influence, but I don't believe they've got... They're not going to sail far this far south to invade us. They won't need to. No. Well, we'll have to wait and see. But, mm. uh, Maybe we've got China by the balls. Do you think? Mm, because we sell a lot of wine to China. Oh. Mm. <laughs> We could spike their wine. <laughs> like Lean and Hardbottom spiked our beer. <laughs> Get cracking, Landon. You've got a lot of bottles to open. And protecting the seals so they don't appear to have been tampered with. But I've got a graph here, dear listener. In terms of our exports, um, showing how much wine we've exported to China, the European Union and the United States. And boy, oh boy, the amount exported to China is going up and up, whereas the others have flatlined. So we sell a lot of wine to China. But mm. you, you might be aware that we all, um, Australian grape producers, grape, grape growers, have mm. been also ex- exporting uh, horticultural expertise to the Chinese and they yeah. are actually producing their own wine. It's pretty low quality at the moment, but yeah. it won't be like that way forever. They'll have problems with growing conditions, though. So, a wine's It's a big country, China, so they would have a, a range of different climates. Yeah, they would and have. some of them would be quite suitable for that's, that's wine true. production. Yeah. But I think, okay, so you were, you know, you were saying China, beware, they're the bad guys. Mm. Um, we need America. And not the people, where the listeners, good, not the Chinese people, yeah. the Chinese leadership, the yeah. Chinese uh, political class yeah. are the bad guys. And, and I said something like, well, you know, American aggression has proved that they're the country who goes around invading countries all the time. Mm. And really, China, historically, has not been a great invader of countries. And you sort of looked at me and not said, what same, about... Not on the same global scale. No, I'll, and I'll, you said, I'll you know, what about um, Tibet or something? Tibet, yeah. absolutely. Exactly. So, they invaded. Yep. Uh, Chairman Mao was famously said, uh, power comes from the barrel of a gun. Yeah, so I did a little research and I thought, well, just how many countries has the USA invaded? Uh, two or three, I don't know. What. I've just, I'll just, I've just, there's a couple of them. I'll just tell you who uh, the USA has invaded. He's going to go with Vietnam, isn't he? I just, here we go. It's just a couple. Morocco, Canada, Algeria, Spain, Indonesia, Mexico twice, Spain, Philippines, Fiji, China, Taiwan, Korea, Panama, Germany, Russia... Germany, Japan, Italy, Romania, Bulgaria, Korea, Vietnam, Guatemala, Iran, Cuba, Brazil, Chile, Grenada, Nicaragua, Libya, Panama, Honduras, Colombia, Iraq, Somali, Sudan, Afghanistan, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan again, Iraq, Libya, Syria. Invaded? That's a very loose use of the word invaded. So, you know, if you're... If you're doing drone attacks, does that count? No, not as invasion. Oh, why not? Because it's not manned? It's an attack. It's not an invasion. Well, if, you've se- if you're sending... Well, how many drone attacks has China launched against other countries? I don't know if we have access to that sort of yeah, information. Okay. Well, look, even if you just ignored um, sort of invasion and you just looked at attempts to overthrow a foreign government, uh, you know, how many... How many other, you know, how many foreign governments has the USA tried to overthrow over the years? Well, a hell of a lot in South America. Yeah. But they've also helped to install liberal democracy in a bunch of them as well. I've just got a list here of, of countries that the United States has attempted to overthrow a foreign government since the Second World War. 
Here we go. China, Albania, East Germany, Iran, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Syria, Egypt, Indonesia, British Guiana, Iraq, North Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Ecuador, Congo, France, Brazil, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Bolivia, Bolivia, Indonesia, Ghana, Chile, Greece, Costa Rica, Bolivia, Australia, Angola, Zaire, Portugal, Jamaica, Seychelles, Chad, Grenada, South Yemen, Suriname, Fiji, Libya, Nicaragua, Panama, Bulgaria. There's another 10 or 15 there. I okay, can't get through you forgot one. Mexico so, and Canada. So, right, what, so, happened, so, what happened in Australia? So, mm, what, what was the... That was, was, that was to do with 1975. Oh, for God's sake, you are not one of those, are you? Did they have any involvement? Or? I don't know. There, there's been always hushed rumours about the CIA's involvement, but I think it's tenuous at best. It's, it's speculation. <laughs> it is speculation, yes. I mean... <sighs> I honestly believe that Gordon wasn't no not Gordon. What was the the, the what was the Governor General's name at the time? It, it's okay. That, it's okay. That John Kerr. Kerr. The, the Chinese took took the submarine and got Holt. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You, Holt, did, you didn't mention that when you yeah. talked about Holt Chinese. Holt went for invasion. a swim and drowned. That's what happened to Holt. No, he drowned. Come on, Scott. No, he was not. He was not pinched by anyone. He drowned. <laughs> All right. Kerr probably had an overinflated sense of his own ego mm. and he thought to himself, we can get rid of this government, I'm going to sack the government mm. and move on. Mm. Kerr was wrong to dismiss the Whitlam government. The Whitlam government, however, probably should have fallen, but it should have fallen at the, at the hands of the people rather than being dismissed by, the, by an unelected official. Mm. And it probably would have. It probably would have fallen anyway, mm. yeah. However, Fraser couldn't wait that long, so, you know, Kirk had mm. moved in and sacked him. I do not believe the CIA involved themselves in that decision. It wasn't right. My point is... Yes, go that on. ...when we're talking about who's most likely to invade or interfere in another country, America are not the good guys. Like, seriously, no, that's a guys. long, come on, long... Come on, come on, come on. No, they It's are, a long, I'm, long list of, <laughs> look, like, these... Trevor, let's not forget the World War Two. The United yeah. States l- spent a lot in blood and treasure to save Western Europe and the world and from totalitarianism. And themselves, yes, and 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 they did it well. And they yeah. didn't yes. install, you know, a uh, a government that served their interests. They installed a liberal democracy in Germany. They installed liberal democracy which in was Japan, in their, which was in their interest. But it was also but, in the interest of the people but, but, of but, those countries. Yeah, but, but it, it was, wasn't purely but, selfish. Well, it, how was it unselfish? It was unselfish how? because they were, they were setting something up for the local citizens but, of those countries. But, but the most selfish thing they could do would be to set up liberal democracies in Japan and, and Germany. How is Why that was selfish? it selfish? How was it unselfish to do it? It was because unselfish it was because unselfish. they spent their own money no, no, and sacrificed they, their no, own no, people. No, no, the setting up of the government post the war, yeah. it is in the American interest to have a liberal democracy in those countries. You can't say that was an unselfish act to oh, set them up. No, 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 that, that, is, that is really... You've That's a very the, cynical you, reading of the situation. You've, you've, what, you've what, missed out. Because what, but the, you can't say it was unselfish to set up a liberal democracy in Japan. Why? Like, it was... If you were the American president, you've got um, a manufacturing base wanting to sell products around the world, you want a healthy economy in other countries to sell your widgets to. So 
you you don't want another Russia. You want a consumer market that mm-hmm. you can sell stuff stuff to. That's why with Germany they were so keen not to have such a and um, a by-the-balls grip of them like they did after the First World War because it crippled the country. Mm. And they went easy on them and said, well, actually, we want you up on your feet again because we want to sell you stuff Mm. and have you part of the economy. So it was actually an unselfish thing to set it up. It was a selfish... And I'm not saying that's bad, but don't don't paint it as an unselfish act to set up the, the, uh, the liberal democracies in those countries because... The the I crazy thing to do that you are opposed to liberal democracy. He's not opposed I'm not. To I'm you. saying it's a, I'm saying it's the correct <laughs> thing to do. He's saying it was a self serving act. Exactly. Don't claim it was unselfish. Wow. That's my point. Well, don't say, oh, the wonderful Americans. They really went out of their way and did this unselfish no, act of setting up a liberal democracy. It was completely too cynical, Trevor. It was completely in their interests. No, come on. It, may it well was have beyond been that. The, it was, may well have been in Don't, the... But you are the ones who are indicating that it was a unselfish act. And I'm simply saying, no, there's nothing unselfish about it. No, it was, I think you are being far too cynical here. I, I, I do think it was unselfish of them to set them up. Now, it may well have been in the did back of their... it out in their ultimate long-term benefit? Absolutely. Then it, it was did. a selfish act. It, did, no. it's, it turned out to be in their ultimate long-term benefit because it is, the, it is in the everyone who lives under a liberal democracy, it is in their everyone's ultimate hmm. benefit to live under that. And also, as we saw, the Germans and the Japanese turned out to be better at uh, capitalism even in some respects than the Americans themselves. Absolutely. They, they produce... You know, the Germans produce the best quality products in the world and the Japanese are not that far behind. And they're selling them to the Americans. Look, I agree with you 100%. I'm simply saying my disagreement with you is, oh, the wonderful Americans who out of the kindness of their heart set up liberal democracies in Germany and Japan. And I'm saying to you, hang on a minute. (laughs) Don't be glorifying what was ultimately... A decision that was of immense benefit mm. to the Americans themselves. It only became a decision that turned out to be in the benefit to the Americans themselves because of the long-term benefit that accrued to those nations. Now, those nations were still in a hell of a mess 10 or 15 years after the war. It took them a long time. I mean, there was that thing that was in the movies just recently, um, The Aftermath, it was called, and that was in 1947. There were still corpses under the streets, under the rubble in the streets mm. of Hamburg and what two about the, years after the war was over. And what about so, the Marshall Plan? Do you know what the Marshall Plan cost the Americans? It's got here, cost about $13.3 billion at the time in the, during the 1950s. And, and that yes. was an enormous Money well invested. Money. Yes. How much did the Versailles Treaty cost them? How much did it cost the Americans? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And what happened? You ended up with the Nazis, yeah, the Nazis, Nazis in there coming back. And they went, shit, that didn't work out. This time, let's not screw them and have another fascist uprising. Oh, yeah, let's let's yes, actually... There was, there was a strong vein of altruism. Let's actually have a Marshall Plan so that these guys don't collapse into fascism again. Oh, no. You, you don't ha- think no, they're strategic no, 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 enough no, no, to think that? No. You don't think they're honestly strategic Yeah, okay, they may well have been thinking that, but why is that wrong to think that way? I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying if I was in their position, 
This is where you're getting but, it wrong. This but, is where you're getting it wrong, Scott. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's perfectly reasonable, correct. Yeah. I would have done it myself, but I wouldn't be patting myself on the back saying, I'm such a wonderful person because I'm giving you all this stuff. <laughs> because I'd be going, you know what? It's a win-win situation. That's the part. Of, that's that's the idea okay, I'm so trying to get so to you. you object to the Americans big-noting themselves. Well, I'm this, objecting you? to you big-noting the Americans. <laughs> that's, that's, okay. that's what I'm doing. If, if you had, had neighbours who were real slackers and didn't mow their lawns, <laughs> you know, and didn't paint their houses, and that depreciated your property value, you would then say, offer, you know, oh, look, I'll mow your lawn for you. I'll even help you paint your house because it's in my interest. It'll maintain the, the value of my property and the, and the property of, you know, the value of the neighbourhood. Is, is it something along those lines? Well, what you're indicating is that we're an integrated uh, system of economies and that you rely on other economies to function correctly. Mm. You rely on other houses to help you. So you're integrated. So the point is that it's an acknowledgement that we're integrated. Yeah. There's no point knocking so, these guys over so like we every, did in Versailles. It's, it's in people's interest to be altruistic to some degree. C- correct. This is the difficulty of identifying true altruism because, uh, you know, a Christian who says, I'm doing something for somebody, I'll, I'll yeah. give that my guy some, really. port, some money. They're earning credit from God. Correct. So the Christian... <laughs> The Christian who gives money to the poor and works on the soup kitchen line, etc., but who does so with the belief that that will be giving them an entry into heaven is, yeah. is not being altruistic in that sense. So, you know, so that's what we're getting at. It's yeah. just don't say wonderful. So back to the issue of... <laughs> you're enjoying this talk, man. You're loving it. I love so, it. Because we're getting to the discussion, oh, you know, China can't trust them. Americans, we can trust them. Well, let me just say... That wasn't out of the benefit of America's golden heart. There was a selfish motivation there. Mm. And if don't rely on their goodwill because they'll help us in Australia as in long times as of it's need, in their interest. As long as it's in their interest. And the minute it's not, then goodbye. Mm. Like they won't lift a finger. Yeah. So, so as soon as you rely, sell your house and leave the neighbourhood, and, you're not going to offer to come back, drive back on the weekend and mow the neighbours. And I'm just saying that when you look at historically at countries that have interfered in other countries, the, the, the list for America is a mile long compared to the Chinese list. So mm. it's a little bit like Bill Shorten, where everybody hated Bill Shorten. Well, you know, everyone hates China. Why? Because we're being told to hate China. But, you know, oh. their, their track record... Is is so much better than the American track record in terms of interfering and manipulating foreign governments. You can't deny that the Chinese play a long Chinese... game. You know that, don't you? They play a long game. You know, but, but, but the Chinese but, the Chinese were locked out of the world for a very long time. They've only just started to become involved in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Roden Belt Program, which is out there buying influence and they are buying long-term investments in other countries, mm. yep. which they plan on converting. They're going to convert the debt to give ac- access so they're going to end up with mm. the equity left over afterwards. Yeah, and they, the Chinese exploit one of the flaws in the liberal democratic system, which is our short-term governments, Absolutely. whereas they have a very long-term government. They do have a very they long-term can, they government. They can wait us out mm. until they get the government who's amenable to their proposals. Mm. You know? 
they'll just keep waiting as long mm. as they need to. Mm. So, look, I'm not saying that the Chinese are completely innocent and wonderful. Thank you. But I'm just I'm saying... Pleased in, to hear that. <laughs> but I'm just saying that in comparison to the Americans, yeah. please, let's have some recognition of there's some form here. I think and, they're probably... And the country with the worst form are the, is the Americans. Well, I don't think they're the worst, but they are I'm just as giving bad. you a You've list. Like a a barely, list there's barely a country on the planet that, that they, they haven't attempted to, to interfere with. In some I understand way. that. However... Significantly. Absolutely. However... If you look at the if you look at their system of government, it is more comp- it is more uh, compatible with ours yeah. than it, what the Chinese it, government. And is. it's open to change. It's open to to being reformed. Whereas the Chinese government is not open to being reformed. Absolutely, and that's what worries me. Our well, system, well, you know, you we can. You don't think the Chinese it. government has undergone reform in the last um, fifty years? It's, got, it's, it's gone backwards well. in the last twenty. Mm. Right. It has gone backwards. Since Tiananmen, I mean, that was a, a glimmer of hope in everyone's mind that they would democratise to mm. some degree and they, they went the opposite direction. Mm. For another time, the, more on China. The body doubt. count. Yeah. <laughs> the body count. Let's do the body count. So at some point we were looking at an article which was basically saying, oh, terrible communism, socialism, it's responsible for all of these deaths around the world. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Were those deaths in the name of communism or were they due to totalitarian dictators who had ultimate power and therefore pursued their own ends to bump people off to maintain power? They may not have executed the people, but Mm. they knew they were going to die and Mm. they they did nothing to prevent their deaths from starvation. From starvation and stuff. So you're counting... Deaths by dictators of communist regimes that occurred through starvation and mismanagement. Yes. Yeah, yes. but it was even just yep. worse than mismanagement. And, and in, we U- came, in we, Ukraine, they deliberately starved Ukraine. Okay. And we came up with about 100,000, 100 million people. Just a mere 100 As a rounded, rounded off figure. Rounded yep. up. It was probably about 100 million. But you've got 60 million in China. Uh, yeah. Stalin was responsible for what, 40 million? 30 or 40. Exactly. The figure I came up with, I seem to recall, we were about, around, 100, about 100 million. million. So right. the question then is how many, how many, was how many people has capitalism killed? Yeah, you had 35 million Indians perished here. Hmm. Uh, and then you've also got a difference between communist China and capitalist India. They're the listener rates. knows nothing about these, Scott. I'm okay. just going to give some background. Like, but, All right, but, we're going to so, go into the background then, shall we? You, so, so I'm I'm going to say that 30 million died in India as a result of capitalism. And I think you've got a very long bow that you're drawing there. I think okay. it was a result of racism rather than capitalism. Because they thought to themselves, well, so what if a few million Indians die? We've got plenty of them. (laughs) Sorry, when Stalin killed all the people in the Ukraine, that wasn't a racism by Stalin because he wasn't Ukrainian? He was Georgian, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, so uh, so was that racism on his part? I couldn't tell you. So hang on. So for for a capitalist uh, English, it was racism when they killed the Indians. Mm Mm-hmm. Not capitalism, mm-hmm. but when Stalin killed people from a different province to him, it was not racism in his case. It, it was could, communism. It could well have been. Like, could well have been racism. Yeah. yeah. 
It so we be. can now discount the communist. We can uh, discount the Russian figures then, if, if that's you want what you're to. Saying. Yeah. If you well, want I don't to, accept that, but I'm just making that <laughs> argument. <laughs> no, it's um. Well, well, why did all of the Indians die? Because you had a they exported the grain from India to Britain rather than leaving the grain behind in India to feed the starving millions. A bit and like the Irish that's potato famine. Exactly. That's part of the story. Mm. And. The point was, so why but doesn't that count as a death by capitalism? Because what you're then there would be arguing is that the death by capitalism was as a result of driving the profit motive. Yeah, mm. and and it wasn't when I you're exporting when you're exporting grain back to the to I, Europe and the country is. Stunned. I couldn't tell you. Maybe they thought to themselves that English lives are worth more than English, than Indian lives. Well, maybe they wanted the money from the grain, mm. and therefore. They were prepared for the Indians to die. Well, there were Indians. Would Indians? It was probably. Let, let, it was if you let, if you didn't export the grain to the United Kingdom, then you'd have potentially starvation on the streets of England, as opposed to the starvation on the streets. And why of India. was there going to be starvation on the streets of England? Well, I don't know because be, they didn't they didn't produce enough because of, their own of the grain. capitalism that was in England. Why? Let me tell you. Oh God! Sit back, dear listener, <laughs> as I tell you a story. This is from a book called The Divide by Jason Hickel. Seriously, you need to sit back and relax because this is going to take a while, but you need to paint a picture. I'm ready. You've got time? Okay. I've got time. Yeah, okay. go for it. We're having a long one tonight. Absolutely. We, we yeah. are. Yeah. You were very naughty earlier on when my Mrs. Fist said, I hope it's, I hope it's only 60 minutes tonight. <laughs> and you said, does that mean you only like a short one? <laughs> Bastard. Yeah. All right. I didn't say only, but yeah. I said, so, Mrs. Yeah. Fist, I take it you like a short one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks for that. Right. In order for capitalism to work, you tell me, at any point if I say something you really strenuously disagree with, feel free to interject. Actually, I'm going to quote a lot here from this book, from uh, The Divide by Jason Hickel. So I'm going to read stuff out, but to give the full picture, I just need to. So I don't often read straight from text, but this is what you're going to get now. In order for capitalism to work, it needs workers. Through the Middle Ages, the vast majority of people in Europe, at least outside the city-states, lived as peasants and were quite happy doing so. Peasants may not have been rich, but they enjoyed the basic rights of habitation. It was unthinkable that anyone should not have secure access to the basic resources they needed for survival. But this traditional system came under attack in the 15th century in a process started in England, when wealthy nobles, eager to profit from the wool trade, began a campaign to turn their land into sheep pasture. And to do this, they abolished the right of habitation that had protected peasants for so many centuries. The enclosure movement, as it came to be known, saw the privatisation of millions of acres over the course of two or three centuries. This was a violent disposition and it required a considerable degree of force. Also, landlords began to realise they could get more value from peasants if they were forced to increase their agricultural output. So they transformed peasants' secure tenure rights into a market for leases and only gave leases to those able to produce the most. Those who were less productive would be kicked off the land and left with no way to survive. This put peasants under tremendous pressure. If they wanted to survive, they had to devise ways of extracting ever more yield from their land far beyond what they needed to live on. This led to a dramatic increase in agricultural output, but the only real improvement was to the landlord's profits. 
The final episode in the destruction of the English peasant system uh, exactly coincided with the Industrial Revolution. By the middle of the 19th century, it was complete. There was almost no common land left and millions of people had been forcibly displaced. Huge portions of England's population had nowhere to go in for the first time in history. A significant proportion of the population had no access to any form of livelihood for survival. The displaced peasants had no way to feed themselves save for one last option, namely to sell their labour for wages. The impoverished refugees provided the cheap labour necessary to fuel the Industrial Revolution. They often worked for 16 hours a day, which was much more than peasants would have spent working on their farms before enclosure. The emergence of the landless working class added a final piece to the great transformation of England's economy. They became the world's first mass consumer population, for they depended on the markets for even the most basic uh, goods necessary for survival. It was the three forces of enclosure, mass displacement, and the creation of a consumer market that provided the internal conditions for the Industrial Revolution. Anyone have any major disagreements with that? No. No. Okay. So let's turn to Ireland. In 1585 in Ireland, English colonisers reproduced the system of enclosure and forcibly expropriated the land of Irish peasants. Many were left with no hope of survival and migrated to England and Scotland to work as wage labourers. Over two to three centuries, Irish peasants had so little land for their own use, they were planting only potatoes, the one crop that would yield sufficient calories for them to survive on very small plots. This dependency on potatoes proved deadly when the potato blight hit in 1845. Over the next seven years, one million people died. This was 10% of the Irish population. What made this um, so appalling was it was completely avoidable. It would never have happened if peasants had retained full rights to their ancestral land where they would have had plenty of space to produce a diversity of crops. Even with the new system, Ireland was producing enough food except it was exporting 30 to 50 shiploads of food to England and Scotland each day during the famine while the local population starved to death. Can I count one million Irishmen to the death by capitalism figure? Shall we give it to him, Scott? He can have a million. <laughs> okay. A million dead Irish. People. One million down, 99 million to go. Mm. Well, you've got 35 there in India, don't you? India. The colonisation of India began in the early 1600s as a corporate affair led by the East India Company. Unlike in America, in most cases, the British didn't resettle all the land themselves, but rather forced the Indians to adopt a new agricultural system. Indian farmers were made to cultivate crops for the export market, namely opium, indigo, cotton, wheat and rice, instead of for subsistence. For many people, making the shift was the only way to survive as it was necessary simply in order to pay the crushing taxes and debts that the British had imposed. Prior to 1870, India's forests had been communally managed. Farmers used them to acquire firewood for cooking and heating and for fodder to feed the cattle they used for ploughing and fertiliser. By the end of the decade, the forest had become completely enclosed to be used by the British for building ships and railways. Common water rights were also privatised and auctioned off and rendered as a market commodity for the first time. In 1876, when El Nino visited the region with a crushing three-year drought, the peasants were left without any security system such as grain reserves and the common areas. 
The consequences were disastrous. 10 million Indians died of starvation. 20 years later, between 1896 and 1902, El Nino struck again, and this time 20 million Indians died of starvation. Even during the height of the drought, the country had a net surplus of food, which was enough to feed the entire population, but the grain was shipped to Europe. Uh, so the Indian famines of the late 19th century were not a natural disaster, but were caused by India's incorporation into the emerging capitalist world system. Before the British arrived, India commanded 27% of the world economy. By the time they left, India's share had shrunk to just 3%. Can I allocate 30 million Indian deaths to the death by capitalism tally? Okay, so up to 31. <laughs> right. Okay. China. Britain wanted extensive trade and was hungry for tea, porcelain and silk, but the Chinese would only accept payment in silver and were not interested in other British products. Britain started selling opium uh, and when the Chinese authorities clamped down, the British retaliated with a military invasion and thus began the opium wars. China, unprepared for naval combat, was brutally defeated. The treaties that followed granted sweeping trade privileges and the consequences were devastating. China's share of the world economy dwindled from 35% to 7%. Its loss of control over its grain markets led in part to the famines that China suffered during the same droughts that India suffered. And 30 million people in China perished needlessly of starvation in the late 19th century. Mm. Look, can China's, I add 30 million Chinese? Can, can I add there were, mm. there were a number of uh, mass rebellions and internal wars in China that were not caused by, the, uh, by foreigners. So you want to disagree on the China figure? Uh, look, I, I, no, I just think can be a the causes are a little bit more complex. Right, but that. we've still got the invasion of British traders mm. f because they want product, mm. forcing the Chinese into things that they yeah. weren't doing before. Okay? But, yeah. The Congo. In Africa, Belgium controlled the Congo, which was an area 80 times larger than Belgium itself. King Leopold enslaved much of the native population and forced them to collect rubber. Leopold assumed total control of the Congolese economy, decreeing that Africans could only sell their products to the state, while the state in turn controlled all prices and incomes. Ten million Congolese perished under King Leopold's regime. Yeah. I'd... For rubber, so that he could sell the rubber around the world. Yeah. It was a very brutal. I know, it was, it was very brutal. I mean, King Leopold's one of the biggest bastards of the planet. He, he was, was an absolute yeah. prick. Mm. I'm putting another 10 million on the tally. Oh, the slave know. trade. By the end of the slave <laughs> trade in 1853, somewhere between 12 million and 15 million Africans had been shipped across the Atlantic. Between one and two and a half million died en route. Let's just rack it up as two million on the slave trade. Yeah. I mean, that was capitalism, buying and selling of people. Mm -hmm. Um. AIDS. AIDS appeared in the late 1980s. How are you blaming AIDS on <laughs> capitalism? I've swung you on the others so far. Wait for this one. <laughs> Tell me you... It appeared in the late 1980s, AIDS. And by the late 1990s, some countries like Swaziland had a 25% infection rate. During the crisis, Indian pharmaceutical firms could produce generic medicine for as low as $350 per year as opposed to the going rate of $15,000. But the World Trade Organisation, pressured by pharmaceutical companies, prevented them from doing so. South Africa disobeyed and the USA threatened them, 
But then the USA itself breached the patent system because of an anthrax scare. And so a public emergency became an acceptable excuse for breaching the patent right and AIDS vaccine was then mass-produced on the cheap. About 10 million Africans died from AIDS and most of that could have been avoided. I'm racking up 10 million African. That that is capitalism of a pharmaceutical company's not allowing who... The, I don't think it's capitalism's fault. That, I think that's, that's that, the fault of the of the pharmaceutical companies refusing that, to share their refusing to share their stuff. That, that's the patent system entrenched by the capitalist system. Like that's not communism. That's capitalism. That's companies telling. Uh, yeah. I have to agree to disagree on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 12th man, no, you with I, me? I right? certainly think capitalism is implicated. So, and I haven't begun on just. Deaths in Latin America. Like, so when we talk about 100 million deaths caused by communism, and just with a few examples that I've given, we can rack up quite a number of deaths to capitalism. So that's my argument. Next time somebody says, oh, we can't have a communist socialist system because look at all the deaths that arise from it. Well, yeah, but there's, a, there's a, the compelling story for the other case as well. But human history is littered with catastrophe I know. and but, death but, on a mass scale. But we have to just recognise this and not say, oh, this side's the, the goodies and this mm. side of the baddies. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we can't be so simplistic in our assessment of uh, politics and yeah, you know, but, political... But, you know, right wing Tony, you know, if I was talking about socialists or whatever, he, he would immediately rant on about Stalin and how it killed everybody and, and, and how it's responsible for the deaths of millions of people, but without recognising mm. all the deaths of capitalism. So... Death it's is, interesting, isn't it? Death is it a is feature of, yeah. of human. Uh, well, this is the whole point. I think that um, death is something that none of us can avoid. It's just one of those things that is very. But we'd prefer to die of natural <laughs> Absolutely, causes. Absolutely, we should. Yes. Yeah. But they haven't been caused by power, <laughs> immense powers that are just treating us like shit because they want some rubber yeah, or they yeah. want some cotton or they yeah. want something transported across the world and they don't care about us. The upshot is, you know, the powers that be, whatever the regime. The entrenched elites basically don't give a fuck about the the common people, yeah, you know, yeah. of whatever stripe. Yeah. So, so there we go. I feel good now. I've got that ring <laughs> off my chest. You well, you're up to a hundred million ahead. Hundred million look, look, I, But I haven't. But, but I which, keep which, going. But which, I, which I, made a, I think I've made my point. I mean, you could probably. Uh, well, the other thing that this article said, okay, which I I haven't mentioned, but. You mentioned it earlier. Was that um, uh, Mao was blamed for the death of sixty, um, sixty million, whatever number? Up to of, sixty uh, yeah, um, is the estimate. Yeah, but um, uh, according to that article, the life expectancy of Chinese afterwards was ten years longer than the life expectancy of Indians. Mm. They both started off at the same life expectancy. But um, let me just find it here. So, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, China and India had the same life expectancy, around 40 years. After the Chinese Revolution, a massive divergence took place. By 1979, Mao's China had a life expectancy of 68 years, more than 14 years longer than that of capitalist India. Mm. So... 
you know, give give you know China a bit of credit for extended life expectancy. Then, yeah, but look, India is not purely capitalist. It's also quite feudal. They still have bonded labour in India. Yeah, and you know, China's not completely communist. They still have aspects of a market economy. Yes, so well, they do in the last what thirty years. Yeah, or so. but you know, so nothing's pure. That's true. Yeah, except for this podcast. I was just <laughs> going to say, <laughs> <laughs> except for our reasoning. Yeah. Anything else? Anybody want to add? No, I don't think so. Right. Well, comrades, I hope you enjoyed that episode. What about beer? <laughs> I mean, surely you give capitalism some credit for producing better quality beer than the communists. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if if the the chemistry knowledge came from a government-funded university department that worked out the essentials and that that was then um, stolen by some, you know, Brewer and patented, you know, like it just wouldn't surprise me. So much research is done in sink, our in our public institutions, and then that knowledge gets privatized and and squirrelled away by a large corporation. So, yep. my sister in law is a um, professor at Berkeley University, working um, uh, with um, eyes, and she works on myopia and. Um, she goes to conferences and she gets invited by these private enterprise groups to come and talk to them and she's got to be extremely careful not to tell them stuff because they're clearly trying to pick her brains as oh. to what's happening at Berkeley University, what are you guys researching, what findings are you, are you getting so that so they, they can, can then... steal it. Yes, so that they can then um, put together two and two and make four themselves mm. and so they've got to be careful to not yeah. divulge too much yeah. to these groups who are... You know, offering all sorts of junkets and things to to uh, the academics and trying to get them to loosen up and reveal what they're up to. Yeah, well, despite so, the heavy burden of guilt yeah. that we, we all carry for our capitalist system, right. I still maintain that at least in our liberal democratic political regimes, we have more capacity for flexibility and for positive constructive change than they do under totalitarian regimes. Yeah. That's our advantage. Yeah. We can fix things more easily mm. and for the benefit of more people, I think. Mm. I hope. Mm. Am I just looking through rosy coloured glasses? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and I do think that we should go back to Marx and Engels' communist manifesto that said the revolutionary dynamism of the capitalists, they wrote, had created wonders surpassing the Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedral. I do think that uh, if Marx and Engels could tip their hat towards capitalism, I think we should all tip our caps. Well, finish, finish the idea. But but capitalism is an economic system drenched with the blood of countless millions. <laughs> I know so, it's just we're going back so, over the same like, thing that Trevor's but, just done. But, done. But, but okay, let's you know when you go to Europe, you've been to Europe. Yeah, I've been to Europe. You've yeah. been to Europe. Yeah, right. and, okay, you go. There's magnificent buildings. The civilization, you just go, oh, look at this. It's so fantastic. Yes. Amazing architecture. It's so old. You think of the civilizations that, that muscled up and created it. Mm. But you've got to acknowledge that a lot of cost. that came at the cost of the colonies that they'd conquered and had raped in order yeah. to get that money to do that stuff. That. So there's an enormous funneling of wealth from, 
you know, in Spain's case, out of Latin America, an enormous amount of gold and silver was dragged out of those countries, mm. which funded those. Um, so, so yeah. you know, you look at capitalism of the wonderful Western capitalism in Europe, but Marx is correct. You know, it came from um, a colonisation of other countries. But Marx- when did the colonisation start? Oh, well, yeah. It probably goes back tens of thousands of years if you, if you want to find out when did the modern, tribes invading other yeah, areas. When did the modern European colonisation start? When oh. was the first colonial flag About the 15th planted? century, I Well, think. Columbus, uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean okay. blue. So, right. you know, in the 1500s, they were, hmm. it was when it was happening. Okay. Yeah. And Marx and Engels wrote when? Uh, 19th century. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, yeah. Anyway, that was interesting. It's an interesting topic, mm. isn't it? It's mm. very interesting. Mm. Mm. Well, dear listener, was that worth a dollar? <laughs> Did you stay this far to the end? Or over an hour and a half? Um, Cheryl will be happy. Sign up as a patron. <laughs> Cheryl will not be happy. <laughs> uh, if you didn't like it, then what are you still doing here? Like, come on. <laughs> Anyway, we've enjoyed it. Hope you did too. And, uh, well, gentlemen, we'll be back next week maybe with the president of the uh, National Secular Lobby. Uh, we'll see. Uh, bye for now. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye now. Bye, everyone. So I'm, I'm going to say that 30 million died in India as a result of capitalism. And I think you've got a very long bow that you're drawing there. I think okay. it was a result of racism rather than capitalism. Can I allocate 30 million Indian deaths to the death by capitalism tally? Okay, so we're up to 31. <laughs> right. It's all over now. You've changed. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up. Tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you... Get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, 
you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.